Let's go ahead and take our Bibles. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Start in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after His supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I used to watch a lot of football. I enjoy the game of football. I love uh, announcing our high school games when we have them here in town. I've always loved watching football. Well, last year, I saw probably less football in the season than I had seen in sometimes in a day. And, and you know why? It was because I just got tired of it. I haven't boycotted it. I might be watching a lot of professional football in the future. I don't know. I don't know what will happen. But to be honest, you know what kind of happened to me? What kind of happened to me is it got so political, and all these people kneeling for a flag that I stand for, but first, I got frustrated and thought, why do you even put the camera on them? Just put the camera on the flag and let us celebrate the flag, and they can, whatever they're going to do, they can do it. Well, you know what? It just got to the point where I just lost interest. Lisa even asked me a couple times during the fall, says, you know what? Our home doesn't sound quite the same without a football game going on in the background. Maybe you should just turn one on some, for some background. I'm like, you know what? I'm just not that interested. The reason, reason I've lost my interest is because the flag. Right, the flag's not really about the flag. It's not about the material that's in it. It's about what it represents. It's about that flag stands for our country. It stands for us. And so when I start to see that disgraced, you're not just disgracing a flag. You're disgracing what the flag symbolizes, what it represents. And the reason I bring that up today actually is not for a political reason. It's for a spiritual one because that's what's happening in Corinth. What is the thing that represents Christianity? If you look through the Bible, the Bible is full of covenants. Noah was given a covenant, and in Noah's covenant, God gives Noah a sign of the covenant. And that sign is the rainbow. He gives Abraham a covenant, and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision for the nation of Israel. He gives the law to Moses, and he gives the sign of the Mosaic covenant is the Sabbath day. So not every... Well, in the New Testament area, in a Christian church, we're in the new covenant in Christ. And what is the sign of that covenant? The sign of that covenant is what we're participating in today. It's the Lord's Supper. And so just as you look in our nation and see that people are taking the thing that symbolizes our nation, the flag, and they're disgracing it, 
That's what was happening within the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was coming together supposedly to celebrate Christ, supposedly to remember what He did for us on the cross and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And you know what they did instead? They made a mockery of it. This church has goofed on a lot of things. And this is one of those things where you get to this part and you say, you couldn't even get that right? The one little thing that's a celebration of what Christ did for us, you even blew that. In fact, they blew it to epic proportions. Because it says within the passage, the Apostle Paul says, look, this is why some of you sleep, which is referring to death. Some of you have died. And some of you are weak. Some of you are ill. God was not taking it lightly. He was punishing individuals within the Corinthian church and the Corinthian church itself. He was punishing them for making a mockery of the thing that was the sign of the new covenant that we have in Christ. Well, that's what we get to dig into a little bit here today. We get to try to figure out what were they doing that was disgracing it because we don't want to dishonor God as we gather together. In fact, notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, look, you guys gather together and you don't make anything better. You've made it worse. It's kind of like when we look back at Isaiah a little bit back in chapter 1. They're coming into the temple and they're offering sacrifices and they're celebrating festivals that God commanded them to. And God says, why are you here? This is not what I wanted. Get out. Well, that's kind of what he was doing with the Corinthians here. They were coming together supposedly to observe the Lord's Supper, but it was turning out to be anything but that. When we read the description of it, there one person going ahead and loading his plate, and the other person at the end of the line's got nothing. People that are prominent members of society are being honored, and people that are not prominent members are being disgraced. And, and he says, I really got nothing good to say for you guys in this in this situation. But thankfully, by their blowing it, at least we get to learn the positive of what the Lord's Supper ought to be. And that's what the Apostle Paul does as he goes through this passage. He says, look, this is where you guys are blowing it now. Let me lay it out for you again. Let me just show you what this supper ought to be. And he goes through and teaches these things. Now, it's kind of like the movie. To be honest, I haven't seen the movie, so maybe I'm not the best person to offer it as an illustration. But I remember one of my kids, when they were a teenager, they came home, they'd been to the movies, and they saw the movie Vantage Point. But my understanding is that that movie is about the same thing over and over. I think it's six times. But each time it shows you what happened, it shows it from a different vantage point, a different person's view of what happened there. That's kind of what the Apostle Paul does with the Lord's Supper. He shows us the Lord's Supper, but he, he does it from these five different vantage points, five perspectives or five, five different ways that we should be looking at the Lord's Supper. The first one that we see is, is that we need to look around. Look around. He's just inviting these people. He says, look, just look around you. Look at what you're doing. Look at what's going on. Look at the people next to you. Now, he's criticizing them because they're not doing it right. The guy that's going through and loading his plate is paying no attention whatsoever to the other people farther back behind him in the line. And the people that are being honored for their prestige are paying no attention to the guy that's feeling disgraced. And the Apostle Paul says, when you come together, and that's what we're doing, we're coming together. He says, when you're coming together, look at the people around you. Recognize the people around you. What are you doing to them? Or what are you doing with them? In fact, by the end of the passage, he focuses that on it again. Notice in verses 33 through 34, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him take care of that at home. Let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment 
He says, you need to look at what you're doing to one another. When you come together, that's what you're doing. You're coming together. You know, the Lord's Supper is never a feast that any intention of doing it on your own. This is a body function. It's the body of Christ functioning as it's supposed to be. And so as we come together, we're supposed to acknowledge one another. We're supposed to be thinking about the Lord. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But not only thinking about the Lord, but thinking about one another. We are with each other. We are, we are part of the same body. In fact, back in, in chapter 10 and verse 17, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so you see what he did was he took the bread that's off the table of the Lord's table. And he says, we're one bread. Now the picture that you have here is there being one loaf of bread and everybody's tearing a piece off of it. We've done that before. It's kind of, it's really kind of a cool picture. People are probably a little more leery about it today with all their germ things going on with COVID going around. But even the bread that you're going to eat today, it's already cut up for you. But it was one batch of dough. And then one piece of bread. All the breaking's already taken care of, so you don't actually see that, but it's still one lump. The Apostle Paul in chapter 10 uses that and he says, look, we're all one bread. We're all one. And that's the first thing that he really encourages the people to do as they participate and encourages us this morning is as we gather together, let's recognize it. We're gathering together. This is something that I don't do on my own. I do it with you. And that's exactly how God wanted it to be. And as we come together, we should feel that sense of family. We should feel that sense of connectedness. We should feel that sense of unity. And our actions and our attitudes should mirror that same sense of unity. The Apostle Paul starts out and says, I've heard about these divisions, and he'd already dealt with divisions back in the first few chapters. He says, you know what, the divisions just really need to go away, and we need to be one as we celebrate this thing together. The first look that we have is just to look around. Then secondly, he gives them another look and he tells them they need to look back. He says in verses 23 through 25, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's for a memorial. It's a chance to look back and to stop and to think about what Christ did for us. You know, memorials are important. I know in our, in our society today where different communities and stuff are evaluating different memorials that are there and deciding whether they should still be standing or celebrating. And there seems to be a knee-jerk reaction to run and tear down a bunch of memorials around the place. And I'm not going to weigh in on which one should or shouldn't go. But you know what? Memorials themselves, the concept of a memorial is a very important thing. We put up memorials for things that we want to remember. And we get that from the Bible. We get that from God. God did that with the nation of Israel. Think of Isaiah chapter 26 and and verse 8. Isaiah said this, In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Isaiah speaking out says, You know what our desire is, Lord? Our desire is to remember you. Well, that's what a memorial does, is it gives us opportunity to remember. That's what the Lord's Supper is here for. It gives us, on the very night that Jesus laid down His life for us, He took these elements on the table and He used them as symbols of His own body and His own blood. And 2,000 years later, we're still doing it. Why? Because we will not forget. This is what our faith is all about. It's about what Jesus Christ did for us. You know, I was watching a TV show not long ago 
and these people are sitting around a dinner table on a Sunday after church. One of the younger people in the family says, it seems like the sermons are all the same. They're just about, when you leave here, go be nicer than you were last week. So then they had a discussion weighing in on that. Some people saying, well, do you really think it's really limited to that? Is that a fair assessment? Kind of back and forth. And in the end, one of the adults says, well, you know, when you get right down to it, that's pretty much what it's all about is going out and treating people better than what you have before. And I thought, no, not that we shouldn't be treating people nicer than we have before, but that's not what it's all about. You know what it's all about? Christ came and He laid down His life for me. That's what it's all about. This is what it's all about, this Lord's Supper. It's, It's about Christ laying down His life for us or laid down His life for us, past tense, so that we can put our faith in Him and we can be delivered from our sins. Then we can go out and treat people nicer because of what He's doing in our life. It's about Him. Well, the way we remember that is through these memorials. If you look at the nation of Israel, God gave them a lot of memorials uh, to, to help them remember these things. In Exodus chapter 12, we find God giving them a memorial to, to remember the Passover and how He delivered Israel out of Egypt and uh, brought them to the promised land. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, as you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so he institutes a Passover feast, which is to be a memorial, something Israel still does today. In Exodus chapter 12, so just a little bit uh, farther in the same passage, he gives them the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He says, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. And so he gives these feasts as a memorial. So that when your kids ask you about these things, you tell them what they're about. And you get to teach them about God. It's the same thing that we do in our church here. Even when we had a junior church, we'd bring the kids back up, even though the kids don't necessarily participate in it yet. We encourage that you participate in it once you've been saved and baptized, and then it's natural to participate in it after that, or at least once you've been come once you've come to Christ. If this is a picture of your faith, then it makes sense. But some of the children in our church haven't experienced that yet. But we bring them right up in here so that the juice and the crackers get passed right before them, but they don't get to eat any. What a mean thing to do. But you know why we do it? We do it so that when they leave, they say, Mom, why didn't I get a cracker? Grandpa, why can't I have any juice? And then you get to tell them. And they get the Gospel explained to them over and over and over at a time when you really have their attention because they didn't get the juice and the cracker. And, and, And that's what he's doing. He says, look, when your kids ask you, why are we doing this? Why do we have this celebration? Why do we have this big dinner? This is why. Well, in Exodus 13, he says, Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Then in Exodus chapter 17, in verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Now what that's talking about is when Joshua led the children of Israel into battle against Amalek. 
Moses goes up on top of a hill, and as long as Moses holds up his staff, then the children of Israel win. And whenever Moses isn't able to hold up his staff, the children of Israel start losing. And pretty soon what happens is Aaron and Hur end up, they get a seat to sit on this rock here, Moses. They sit him down, and they step in beside him, and each one holds up an arm of Moses to keep Moses' staff lifted. It's kind of a beautiful picture of prayer if you think about it that way. So as long as Moses was holding up the staff in Israel, they went on to win. And after that happens, God tells him, now write this down in a book for Joshua. In the future, he's going to be the leader of Israel. He's going to take Moses' place. He can constantly be reminded of how God gave him the victory. It wasn't his own strength. It wasn't his own power. But God gave him the victory as they trusted in him. But God says we need a memorial for that thing. And then also when you get to the book of Joshua, when he's leading them into the promised land, you know what happens? God brings them up to the Jordan River, just like he brought them up to the Red Sea when they were fleeing from Pharaoh of Egypt. And he brings them up to the Jordan River and he parts the river and they walk across on dry land. But when they get to the other side, God says, now before I bring back the water, I want you to do something. They appointed 12 men. They said, each of you go grab a big rock out of the middle of the river and make a monument out of those rocks that you got out of the middle of the river. So that in the future, generations, when a family's walking by the river and they see this pile of rocks, you can tell your kids, you know why that pile of rocks is there? Because on this day, God did this for our nation, bringing us into the promised land. The same reason that they do the things they do with the Passover, the same reason that for a whole week they kick leaven out of the entire country of the nation of Israel, the same reason they do all those things that they do, and these aren't all of them, this is just a smattering of them, but God set up memorials because memorials are important because there's things that we need to never forget. And that's why those things are there. And one generation needs to learn from the previous generations about the workings of God within our midst. And that's exactly what we're celebrating this morning. We're celebrating something that for 2,000 years has been handed down from believer to believer to believer to believer. It's our chance to look back and stop and think about what Christ did for us as He went to that cross and laid down His life for us. But not only is it a look back, it's also a little bit of a look without. The reason I put this one in there is because verse 26 says, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death as, as you do this thing. As we sit down with one another and we go through this festival, this feast, this Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming Christ's death. There's been some debate down through the ages about what all this feast is. It's really a memorial of what Christ did for us. Some have tried to make it more than that. The Catholic Church has a view called transubstantiation. That is that the elements themselves literally become the body and blood of Christ. The Lutheran Church takes a little bit different view. They call it consubstantiation. Christ is present in, with, and under the elements, but they don't necessarily change into that. You know, really the point of this is to be that memorial. And it's an opportunity to proclaim. When Jesus sat at that table, His physical body was still there in their presence. The bread wasn't turning into anything. His body was still there. His blood was still flowing through His veins. It was just a symbol. And that's consistent with the way Jesus often taught. You know, Jesus would tell His disciples, I'm the good shepherd, you're the sheep. He would tell them, I'm the door. He would tell them, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Jesus uses symbolic language a lot. And He's doing the same thing when He sits down with this feast. He says, this is My body, this is My blood. They're symbols. But as we participate in the symbols, we experience God's grace in our lives like we do when we hear a sermon or we pray. But as we follow these things, not only are we 
focusing them inward to ourselves, we're focusing it outwards because he says, in a sense, you're, you're physically proclaiming Christ's death. Did you know that probably most all, if not all, of the unbelieving people that might live in the community around you know that you do this? The world knows that we're doing this. In fact, early Christians got labeled a bloody religion because of celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's an opportunity to proclaim. And, and when you think about it, we've got people within our midst maybe that haven't recognized that they need faith in Christ or haven't recognized the forgiveness in Christ. And, and so that it proclaims regularly and to our children as they come up, proclaims the gospel to them over and over and over. And so there's a look uh, without as well. Well, not only is there a look without, there's also a look ahead. Because he says in verse 26 that we're to do this, what? Until Christ comes. Until He comes back. So at the same time that we're looking back to what Christ did for us before, we're also looking forward to His return and when He comes for us again. And so there's a look forward as well that this isn't the end. It's not just about what happened in the past. It's about what happened in the past to pave our way into the future. And it's about looking forward also. You know, the Apostle Paul... He was constantly, it appears, focused on what he called that day, the day when he, when he would be with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 7 and 8, as we started this book, it said, So that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when the Apostle Paul is just getting started in this letter to the Corinthians, he gets started with a focus on that day. He's saying, look, right now you're not really living in a way that's consistent with how you want to stand before Christ on that day. And the rest of the letter is pretty much about, it can be summarized as, getting the Corinthians ready for that day when they'll stand before Christ. The Apostle Paul does that not only with other people, he does that with himself. In 2 Timothy, as he writes his second letter to the young Timothy, he says, which is why I suffer. Now, it's in the middle of a sentence here, kind of. He's talking about him being a teacher and an apostle, a preacher of the gospel. And he says, you know what? That's why I'm suffering. Uh, he recognized that his imprisonments, his beatings, all that stuff comes because he keeps sharing the gospel with people that don't want to hear it. Now, he says this, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You see, the Apostle Paul says, look, I go through all this suffering, and eventually he knows he's going to lose his life eventually, and he does. He says, you know what, that's okay with me. The suffering is fine. You know why it's fine? Because he knows that he has committed himself to Christ. And he knows that Christ is able to guard his commitment until that day when he stands before Christ complete. How was he able to go through that suffering and still remain faithful? Because he wasn't focused on today. He was focused on that day. And that's really our focus as Christians should be that. This world's not our home. We're just passing through, as the song says. Our focus should be that day. Second Timothy marks a book that was probably the Apostle Paul's, some of his last words to young Timothy. And when you get toward the end of the book, in chapter 4, he knows what lies before him. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. What's the Apostle Paul saying? Saying, look, I've, I've remained faithful. I've fought. I've run my race. Soon my life is going to be taken from me, and that's okay, because I'm going to be with Christ, and I get the reward. That day is going to be here for me, and that's what I've been living for. And so it's a look forward 
is to look forward to that day when we get to stand before Christ. Lastly, he tells them they need to look within. Notice in verse 27 through 32, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And so he tells them, look, you need to, the last look that you need to take, the last vantage point is you need to look within. He just encourages them, look, as you gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says, this is what I want you to do. Just look inside. Look in your own heart. Look Look at your own actions, your own attitudes, your own beliefs, your own relationship with Christ, and ask yourself this question. Is what I'm doing and the way I'm going about it, is it fit for Christ? Is it honoring to Him? But also, does my life does my life line up with this? I'm celebrating Christ dying on the cross to pay for my sins. Am I still living in them? Or am I walking away from them? Have I repented of them? Does my life, the things that we're celebrating here this morning, does my life line up with those things or is it some kind of a contradiction you know I remember when I was a teenager I wasn't a Christian yet wasn't saved was quite a bit into partying and stuff at the time and uh, a friend of mine if you if you spent the night at their house Saturday night you went to church with them Sunday morning that's just how it worked and uh, I remember one time going to church with him and in their church, they all got up and walked up and participated in the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And um, I didn't, you know, because I wasn't wasn't my church or anything. And so uh, I just kind of stood and watched while people did that part of it. And uh, so a line formed down the middle, and I'm standing there in the pew, and I kind of turned at one point, and I looked back, and there's another guy coming forward in the line. And I thought... Now this guy was this guy was a serious partier. And I thought, wow, I know what that guy was doing last night. But look at what he's doing today. And I thought, wow, this this really doesn't fit. Well, that's kind of the point that he's making. In your life does this fit? And he gives us a, an opportunity to look, examine within our own hearts. It's not asking, it's not saying are you perfect? Are you trusting? Are you following? Because this whole thing is about the fact that we're not perfect. That's why Christ did all these things. But are you trusting? Are you following? We need to examine that. You know, in his next letter to the Corinthians, he would tell them this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So he just encourages them. He says, test yourself. See if your faith is genuine. And he says, because you really need to understand this about you, that Christ is in you. He said, unless, of course, you fail to meet the test. If you test your faith and it doesn't 
appear to be genuine, then maybe you just need to believe in Christ. But he says, otherwise, you know what you need to do is you need to get your mind around the fact that Christ is in you. And so you need to flesh that out in your life. You need to live a life that's consistent with that. So that's what the the Apostle Paul brings us to as he leads the Corinthians down this path. He brings us to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table that we get to participate in today. And he says, you know what, as you do this, you need, to, you need to take this look from these different vantage points. You need to look around, look around and recognize who you're doing this with. And see value, see family in the people that you're sitting down with to participate in this, in this memorial. You need, to, you need to look back. You need to look back and recognize what Christ did for us. As he laid down his life on the cross, we need to we need to look without in the sense that we're proclaiming our very actions, not just our words, but our actions are proclaiming the death of Christ as we celebrate this table today. And we also need to look ahead. We're doing this, recognizing that it's not all in the past. Christ has promised to come back and get us and we're looking forward to that day. And at the same time, looking within and saying, how consistently am I living out my faith? If we do all those things this morning, then we're bringing honor and glory to God and we're participating in the Lord's Supper just as He intended it to be.